Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we are your children, and we thank you this morning for that you have set us free through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And now as we turn to your written word, we pray that we would hear your voice speaking to us, that it would become living to us and active, penetrating our hardened hearts, doing our souls good, and bringing glory to you as it changes us into the likeness of our Savior. We ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. If you've got a Bible, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you haven't, down the center aisle here, uh, there's Bibles, someone on the end. Just look down, see if anybody needs one. And in these Bibles here, the uh, Pew Bibles, if you like, uh, page 588, 1 Peter chapter 2. While you're turning there, let me read you an article that I read this week uh, by a man called Arthur Rosenfeld, and it's entitled The Simple Life. It goes like this. In our speed and greed culture, the words complex and complicated and all the nuances and the layers that these words evoke have reached a kind of cult status. Being a complicated person means that you have depth and smarts and education, your fingers in a lot of pies and many people in your life. You have prospects and more than a few pots on the burner. The pace of modern life, increased and supported by our technology in general and our personal electronic devices in particular, has resulted in short attention spans, an addiction to the influence of information, and a life high in stress as we pursue complicated activities and schedules, complex relationships, and busyness-inducing commitments. Then he asks this question. Are you aware that your life has become too complicated? Are you always rushing to catch up? Do you find yourself doing so many things at once that you can barely remember what day it is? Do you feel you are stressed out by all of the shoulds of your life, by the countless material things that you need to keep track of and care for, by the endless commitments that you've made, the formidable list of titillations you find yourself unable to ignore, the responsibilities you have shouldered in order to feel like a more substantial contributing member of society. If so, it may well be time to simplify your life. And then he lists a whole bunch of recommendations of things that you should do, like sell your stuff and throw out your calendar and just live on the hoof. And then he says this at the end, a simple wardrobe, a simple routine, a simple home, a simple lifestyle, a simple, straightforward, meaningful relationship. These words describe freedom, not limitation. Intensity, not distraction. Focus, not mental fog. They describe a life fully lived, not a lack of life. A simple life is a deep life. And then he says, years ago, trend watchers began to say that less is more. But let me tell you today, it's clear that simple is just simply better. I thought, oh, all right. can quite buy into that a little bit, perhaps. Because I can identify with that middle paragraph where life is complicated. Anybody else? Yeah? All right, a few people, good. All right, so I'm not just like, just me. Great. 
We're always rushing to catch up, difficult things to do. And it's very easy to, to do that in normal life and then treat our Christian lives the same. We've always got to be busy. We've always got to be doing this. We, and we can overcomplicate things because we think there's so many plates to spin and balls to juggle that the, the stunning simplicity of our faith in Jesus Christ can become complex and complicated. And this morning, I'm, I love the way Peter's going to address us because he's going to talk to us about deep truths of the Christian life, but in ways that are simple to understand. And he's going to help us with a less is more, simple is simply better Christian life. Now, after having reminded us, <clears throat> uh, remember who you are, from verse uh, 3 of chapter 1 right through to the end of verse 10 of chapter 2, he now in verse 11, which we're about to read, 1 Peter 2.11, starts a new section. It's a new section of his epistle, and really it's the epicenter of the epistle. And he's going to, in, in two verses that we're going to read, he's going to lay a summary, a less is more simple summary of what it means to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't. He's going to help us to strip back our schedules. He's going to help us to strip back our commitments. He's going to help us to not find that we just have to rush to catch up on everything. He's going to help us to strip away all of those complicated shoulds that we feel stressed out by so that we can follow Jesus in a world that doesn't. And he's going to help us to see that God's call to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't is, is deep but simple. Okay, And he's then, in the rest of the book, if you like, from verse 13 of chapter 2 right through to the, about chapter 4, verse 11, he's then going to unpack this summary statement and flesh it out a little bit, applying his principles of these two verses into real life and concrete situations that relate to how we relate to society, how we live in our homes, how we live in our marriages, how we live in our workplaces, how we live in the church, all things we need to know about. How are we going to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't? So let's read, <clears throat> and then we'll dive in. Here's what God has to say through Peter. Beloved, beloved, don't miss that. Okay, let me do, I'm preaching before we've even read. But don't miss that, because that word there, that word there reminds us of God's affection for his people. This isn't just commands. This is a commands rooted in love for our good. This is, this is God speaking to his beloved. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's God's word to us this morning. <clears throat> this is, if you like, and this is why I've titled the message, How the Beloved Are to Live. How the Beloved Are to Live. And Peter's got three simple stages or steps or things uh, to help us understand how to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't. 
and hopefully I've made them as memorable as possible. He wants us to live like an alien, fight like a soldier, behave like an ambassador. Live like an alien, fight like a soldier, live like an ambassador. And we're going to jump in now and see those three. First one is this, live like an alien. Now, who knew that there was aliens in the world? All of those people that, you know, the, um, the conspiracy theorists, oh yeah, there's aliens, and I, I don't think there's aliens from outer space, but there's aliens in the world, and you know what? They're you and me, if you're a Christian. Because Peter calls us in verse 11, sojourners and exiles, or in some translations, uh, strangers and aliens. And he's already called us exiles or aliens two times in his book, in in chapter 1, verse 1, and in chapter 1, verse 17. So to mention it a third time, it's got to be important. It should be important to us. We should pay attention to it. Because he wants to remind us that we as Christians are foreigners who live in a land that doesn't belong to us, that's not our own. We're sojourners, that means we're journeymen. We're passing through this world as we head towards the destination of our true home. We don't belong here. We don't belong here in this world. We used to. We used to. But now, in mercy, God has pulled us out of darkness and into his glorious light. And he's made us a holy nation, a people belonging to him. And in doing so, he's now put us at odds with the world around us. In rescuing us from sin, he has made us aliens to the world we once belonged to. And therefore, as aliens, we've got to cultivate this mindset of living as an exile. We've got to live like an alien. We've got to remind ourselves, this isn't our home. Comfortable as it might be and feel to us, this is not our true home. We we are to live in this world, but we're to live in this world according to the wisdom and the priorities and the values of our true heavenly home. No longer do we take our bearings for how we operate and conduct ourselves in this life according to the conventional wisdom of the world around us, but we take our bearings from God and his eternal word. We get our cues of living from him. And so when Peter says and addresses us as sojourners and exiles, he wants to remind us that we are not to be a people who are trying to amalgamate God's word and our Christian lives into a Western and worldly way of thinking, but we're to be a people who recognize that we don't belong here anymore, who then regularly and intentionally try and think about what is best for our souls and what is best for the glory of God in all the different areas of life. So think about food and what you eat or the car that you drive, the films that you watch, the clothes that you wear, the bedtimes that you take, the savings accounts that you have, the education that you put on your children, the sports that you enjoy, how we respond to humanitarian crises. All of these things, areas of life, we now have to live according to God's word and God's rules, even though we remain in this world. That's what it means to live like an alien. And we need to wake up and realize the reality of that so that we don't drift blindly through this world, assuming that what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears is good for us. That the culture's message and agenda and priorities and values and practices will be good for our souls and help us to glorify God. We shouldn't just assume that. We've got to be discerning. That's what it means to live like an alien. 
How does this fit with God's word? How does the world fit into God's word? How do I understand the things that I'm faced with according to God's word? So just ask yourself the question this morning. Are you living like an alien? Are you living as though this world is not your own? Or would someone look at you and say, ah, they seem to be a little bit too tethered to this earth. When in reality, as Christians, our tether has been broken and it's been retied to heaven. And are we trying to fit the square peg of the, of the world into, or sorry, are we trying to fit the square peg of, of following Jesus into the round hole of the world? Are we trying to fit our Christianity into the world or are we saying, no, Christianity makes sense of the world and I need to discern what's good for me and my soul and what brings glory to God? We need to live like an alien. Secondly, we've got to fight like a soldier. This as well is in verse 11. If you look back in your Bibles with me, after urging them to remember that they're sojourners and exiles, he then says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. There's a war going on at the moment in this world and it affects every single one of us in this room. It's not a war against AIDS, it's not a war against Ebola, it's not a war on terror, it's not a war on plastic and saving the environment, it's not a war on drugs and drunk driving, it's not a war against the establishment and stick it to the man, it's not a war against sugar and obesity and cholesterol, it's a war against your soul, against your heart, and the enemy is sin. The enemy is sin. See that in verse 11. The passions of the flesh wage war against your soul. Now, we know that the Bible teaches that when Jesus died on the cross and rose again to new life, he paid the penalty for our sins. It's done. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. He also broke the power of sin over our lives so that we no longer uh, are, are just sinners. We are able to say no to sin. He has broken that power over us. He's given us a new master. He's called us to, uh, to, he's freed us from the bondage of slavery to sin. As we just sang, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. But he's called us to use that freedom to bind ourselves to him. In obedience. The power of sin has been broken in our lives. We've got a new master. The penalty of sin has been paid in full. But the New Testament teaches very clearly that the presence of sin remains within the heart of every Christian. And it is raging with war against your soul. And Peter here calls us to pick up our arms and fight like soldiers. You see, so often we think about spiritual warfare as being um, battling unseen forces and demons that hide behind every bush and in every nook and cranny. I was once uh, in, a, in a situation many, 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 many years ago when I was growing up. I was at my grandparents' church and the, the, there was a woman in church who was, who was re- praying against the demon in her petrol tank because her car wouldn't start that morning. That's not, that's not spiritual warfare. Neither is the warfare against the people out there. 
who hate Christians. We should fight back. No, no, no. Peter tells us that the, the war that Christians face is a battle in here. A battle over the heart. It's a, it's a battle and a war fought on the turf of your heart for what you will worship, what you will love, who you will follow, who you will serve. And it's a war that's fought in every situation and in every location and in every circumstance and in every relationship that we have this side of eternity. And it's not a war where we are able to drive around in tanks or sit in an office and just launch nuclear weapons at the push of a button. This is a war of hand-to-hand, close combat. It's, it's guerrilla warfare where the enemy lurks inside. And we're to fight like soldiers. Peter tells us that there are passions of the flesh at work within us. That's that's a description of the desires of the old sinful nature that we we once had, that used to govern us, that still rage within us, trying to seduce us and draw us back to our old ways of living, trying to overthrow Jesus and unseat him from the, the throne of our hearts to put themselves on that throne. We live in a world where seduction and temptation comes banging at our door every single morning. And these powerful siren calls can entice us and entrap us and seek to enslave us once again in sin. And Peter tells us we're to fight. We're to fight like soldiers. Don't live with a, as a Christian with a peacetime mentality. It's a wartime mentality. We are the army of the Lord. We're soldiers enlisted in the fight for hearts and souls, our hearts and souls. And we've got to fight the passions of the flesh. Now, just to try and drill down a little bit deeper, I think the war is happening on two fronts. Number one, I think passions of the flesh can be understood as as, as Now, often people just talk about passions of the flesh or that he's talking about lust and sexual sin. Well, it includes that, but it's so much more than that. When he describes passions of the flesh, he's talking about any desire that's contrary to God's word, contrary to God's will, that puts you outside of God's commands. The passions of the flesh are are self-conscious Deliberate acts and choices to put yourself outside of God's commands and demands for us. To transgress what he says to do. Or to do the things that he says not to do. It's a fight against evil desires. That's the first front that it's fought on. It's a fight against evil desires. Let me give you some examples. When you are tempted to lie at work or present yourself as someone you're not in order to curry favor with the boss so that you can climb the corporate ladder and earn more money, that's an evil desire that needs to be rejected and resisted and fought against. That's spiritual warfare. Will I tell the truth or not? When your eyes drift to the attractive woman or the handsome man on the billboard or on the street or in the mall and you allow your mind to race with lustful thoughts and fantasies about what God prohibits. That's spiritual warfare. Are we going to say no? Or are we going to indulge our evil desires? When we sit around our, our 
coffee table with our friends and we gossip about another friend who just isn't there because we find delight in judging others and talking about their lives and their problems because it makes us feel better about ourselves. That's evil desires that need to be rejected. That's where spiritual warfare happens. When you hear the kids fighting in the bedroom upstairs and you begin to climb the stairs with your heart getting more and more mad with every step and you have this thought that runs through your mind that I am just going to let them have it in a minute. I'll give them something to cry about. Anybody ever said that? Or just me? All right. That's evil desires that need to be rejected fought against. That's where spiritual warfare happens. When we fill the wine glass again, but we know we've already had too much alcohol, but we don't care because we want to escape our mundane situation or we want to numb the pain or we like the excitement of lower inhibitions. That's evil desires that need to be fought against. Husbands, in that moment when we're in that argument with our wives and we're tempted to use whatever means we can to win the argument, cruel words, cutting remarks, sarcasm, anger, emotional blackmail, because winning has become more important to us in that moment than what God calls us to, which is to love and cherish and nurture and care for our wives. That's spiritual warfare. Fighting evil desires. Which way will we go? When we swipe our credit card to purchase something that we can't afford so that we'll look good to others or so that we keep up with the Joneses and in doing so it will mean a limit to or an actual end to our giving to the church or an end to our hospitality or to our generosity or to our care for the needy because we just selfishly want what we want. Whether it be a new electronic item or a new car or a new carpet or new clothes or new shoes or to do some kind of entertainment. When we do that... That's evil desires at work in our hearts that need to be fought off. When you're tired and you're low and you're upset and you just want to sit down and wallow in self-pity and so you get the TV on or you get your computer out and you channel hop or you click here and there in the hope that you'll see something that will just distract you from your pain or take your mind into places that you know it shouldn't go but I don't care right now. That's evil desires that need to be fought against. There are multitudes of illustrations and examples that we could give, but all of them are conscious decisions to step outside of God's plans and demands and commands for us to transgress his word and to do what he prohibits. And Peter calls us to fight like a soldier against them. Now, there's also another area in which this uh, battle happens. It's, it's in the area of fighting not against evil desires, but against inordinate desires, if you like. Okay? What, and what I mean by this is that there are certain things in life that are good things that can become bad things when they become ruling things. Okay? So what might be a good thing today that was a desire, or what might have been a good thing yesterday that was a desire yesterday, oh, I'd like that, now becomes today's demands and tomorrow's needs. I've got to have it. Might be a good thing. For example, a person who likes order and cleanliness and everything in their place, who can't stand disorder and dirt and, and a messy house, that's a good thing. God, God is a God of order. But it's not a good thing if it begins to rule us 
and constrain us. And so when things are out of place, there's anxiety in our hearts and there's, there's fear or there's bitterness or there's resentment or it changes our mood or it kills our joy. Or what about the person who wants to work hard at work and is, is seeking to do a good job to progress and be successful in their business and their career? That's a good thing. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, in all things, do it for the glory of God. That's great. But not if it starts to rule you and control your heart. And anxiety or anger or bitterness or resentment or mood swings or joy is affected. What about the student who wants to work hard and get good grades? That's a good thing. First Corinthians 10.31 again. But not if it becomes all-consuming. Not if it starts to rule and to control your heart, to govern your joy, to affect your moods. If you get good grades, you're happy. If you get grades that suck, you suck. So it's not just a battle against bad things and evil desires and sin. It's a battle against good things that become very bad gods when they try and control our hearts. It's idolatry. Is a passion of the flesh. Now, Richard Keyes, a, a commentator, uh, uh, wrote a book about idolatry. He once said this, all sorts of things are potential idols, depending only on our attitude and actions towards them. Idolatry doesn't necessarily involve explicit denials of God's existence or character. That may well come in the form, sorry, it may well come in the form of an over-attachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can become or can be a physical object, a property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero. Anything that can substitute for God. Anything that can substitute for God. Anything that you want more than God, Peter tells us here, needs to be fought against. And as sinners, we have the, we have the seemingly, if you're like me, the unending capacity to turn anything into a God replacement. We have the ability to turn almost anything. The catalog is seemingly endless of things that we can take and we can put on the throne of our hearts. And wherever and whenever we attach our identity to something or we derive our meaning and purpose from something or we seek fulfillment and satisfaction and inner peace from something in creation and we look for it to provide what only the creator can provide, and we look for it to save us and do something that only Jesus can do. That is something that needs to be fought against. Because false worship and idolatry and fight, the fight against inordinate desires needs to be won. Because if we don't, it leads to addiction. I've got to have the next thing because that will make me happy. And it will ultimately lead to disappointment. Because created things can never do what the creator does. So... Student, husband, wife, mother, father, son, daughter, worker, homemaker, retiree, friend, young, old, male, female, all of us. There's a battle going on in our hearts for the control of our souls. It takes place in the kitchen, the bedroom, the lounge, the office, in the car, with the TV, with the internet. It happens in the normal, mundane domains of everyday life where we are faced with all kinds of seductions, all kinds of temptations from a strong enemy who's seeking to conquer us. And Peter tells us, 
we've got to fight like a soldier. Look again at verse 11. Fight like a soldier. Abstain. That's a word that means fight and resist and flee and avoid. Don't believe the lie that Christians say, hey, just let go and let God pray that he'll take that away from you. No, Peter calls us to fight. In that word abstain is is all sorts of ideas like don't toy with your sin like a cat toys with a ball of wool because you'll get tangled up. Don't let it get a foothold because it will climb and conquer you. Don't dabble with it thinking that you will be okay and you can pull back at any time because it is locked on to your heart and it won't let go. Don't binge on it and then starve yourself and binge and starve and binge yourself. That doesn't work either. Peter calls us to abstain, fight, resist, flee, avoid. The word abstain is in the Greek is in the present tense. So what Peter's saying here is this. Don't just do it one time and expect the job to be done, the battle to be won. It's a continual, daily, ongoing, constant, consistent fight against sin. And against that which seeks to rule our hearts that isn't God. And in that, in abstaining, oh, there's so much that could be said, but it's drawing on the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that's at work in every believer by the Holy Spirit. It's drawing on the power and the promises of God's word. It's putting on the full armor of God as Paul exhorts us to in Ephesians 6. It's drawing on the community of saints as God's people to lock arms together and encourage one another and support one another in our fight. And it's taking the Bible and searching it for the appropriate strategies and the countermeasures that we can use to defeat sin. The battle for our hearts, the battle for our souls does not happen in three or four major moments of life, but in the 10,000 little moments of everyday life. And Peter's calling us, not don't give in to the dark side. Don't give in to the dark side. Join the resistance. Join the rebellion. And fight. And there are places in each of our hearts, crucial places in each of our lives where we need to fight. We need to fight with the risen power of Jesus Christ. We need to fight sin. So where is that for you right now? And how are you going to fight? What are you going to do to fight? Because Peter is calling us to fight like soldiers. It's a serious calling because what is at stake is your soul. John Owen, who was the great English Puritan in the 1600s, wrote a wonderful, although very difficult to understand, book called The Mortification of Sin, which just means killing sin. And he says this, the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. Every unmortified sin, every sin that we allow to and we indulge or we allow to live will certainly do two things. Number one, it will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor. It will rob your joy. Number two, it will darken the soul and deprive it of its comfort and peace. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. 
Peter tells us we must fight like soldiers and live like aliens. And thirdly and finally, we are to behave like ambassadors. Verse 12, behave like ambassadors. Now, we all know, hopefully, what an ambassador is. An ambassador is a representative of a kingdom who lives in a foreign land to represent that nation, to represent that land, to to represent the king or the government and the values and the standards and the hopes and the dreams of that culture that they come from. They're there to make a difference, to make a stand, to help people understand why that particular nation operates and does the things that it does. And Peter calls us to behave like an ambassador. He tells us in verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Honorable. We're to live honorably. What that means is we're to live in a way that honors God. And as we live in a way that honors God, recognizing that our lives don't belong to ourselves, that God's grace has been given to us not to build our own little kingdoms, but to live as part of his kingdom, that God has invited us into his plans and his purposes for a much greater kingdom. We're ambassadors for that kingdom. And the way that we live will either exalt that kingdom or defame that kingdom in the eyes of the watching world. And God has called us to behave like ambassadors. There's never a time or a place in our lives where we're not living as God's representative on the earth. It's just a question of whether we're a good representative or a bad representative. And God has such, so designed it in his economy and in his providence that the evidence for the reality and the truth of the kingdom of God and the power of the gospel is yours and my life. And so Peter calls us to live in such a way that when we're attacked for being Christians, when we're marked out and we're, and we're persecuted because our lives don't line up to the world, because our conduct is out of step with the culture that we live in, we're to live honorably in such a way that the accusations are proven false. And they don't stack up or stand up to scrutiny when they're compared to the purity and the faithfulness of our lives lived for God. Look at what he says. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they call Christians evil, because we won't agree with their agenda, they actually look at your life. They see your good deeds and it's transforming to their lives. Did you see that? The amazing result of living as an ambassador in this world is that God will use yours and my life to transform enemies into sons and daughters of the king. Did you see that? Persecutors who mock us, who slander us, who unjustly accuse us of evil. God will use your life and your good deeds and your honorable conduct to bring them to salvation. Isn't that amazing? What a a privilege that is. What a responsibility that is. That there are people who are outside of this room right now who will come to know Jesus because they look at your life and they look at my life and they see how we live and they say, I want that for myself. You see, we don't just go to work because work is how God has provided for us and our families. We work because God has put us there as his ambassador. To live in such a way that reflects the truth and power of the gospel. So, you are a gospel teacher. 
Andy Joy. You are a gospel physio, JD. You are a gospel midwife, Joe. You are a gospel nurse, Ruth, Tom, Tim, Hannah Huck. You are gospel web developers. Stay-at-home mums are gospel mums. People who live next door to people are gospel neighbors. Nick, Paul, you're gospel bankers. People who are at school or at university are studying with gospel students. Our lives are meant to reflect the gospel. We don't just live honorably to make more money. We don't just live neighborly to make our neighbors like us. God has put us in the places he has so we might testify to the gospel by behaving like an ambassador. Now, later on in chapter 3, Peter will go on to say, talk about reverse evangelism, how people will come to us and they'll say, what is the hope you have? Why are you living the way that you do? And why do they come and ask that question? Because they have been hooked by a transformed life that they have seen. And they want to know what makes the difference. What makes us joyful, what makes us hopeful, what makes us courageous, what sustains us in suffering. And we point people to Jesus as his ambassadors. So Peter says, live like an alien, fight like a soldier, live like an ambassador. Point people to Jesus. And that's where we'll finish this morning. Because Jesus is our only hope to do this. The only reason we can be exiles and aliens and soldiers and ambassadors is because Jesus has gone before us. Jesus was the ultimate exile, willing to leave his heavenly home to come to earth. He didn't have a place to call his own. He didn't have a place to lay his head. He was willing to face injustice and betrayal and rejection because he had kingdom purposes in mind. And Jesus fought like a soldier, laying down his life to conquer sin. And Jesus was the ultimate ambassador who regularly said, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. I've come only to do what the Father wills. And he didn't come just as our example, he came as our substitute. In all of these realities, we will never be able to say, I live perfectly as an exile and an alien. I live perfectly and fought like a soldier. I live perfectly and behave like an ambassador. And when we fail and fall short of the glory of God, which we do, we need Jesus. The perfect exile, soldier, and ambassador, our only hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would so capture our hearts and our attention, that you would be the one thing and the only thing that we want to live for. And that you will help us to live like an alien, fight like a soldier, behave like an ambassador. For the good of the world around us, that they may see you and glorify you in our lives. And we might glorify you as your children, beloved in Christ. Amen. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to close out with a song. We're going to sing, O Great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart.